Greetings, this is Pastor A.J. Swanson from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. We're so excited that you've joined us as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew and the Kingdom of Heaven. We hope this sermon series encourages you. Bibles were in the same section as last week, so we're going through the model of prayer part two in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's in the title. This is part two, so we at least have to summarize part one if you're just joining us. However, it's from the same text of scripture, so we're going to start there. Please stand for the reading of the word of God this morning. We'll be in verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. So let's review part one. Um, for those of you that don't know, we also, you can, you can re-watch the uh, message either on Facebook. We're also on a lot of the podcast apps. So if you go to Google, you go to Spotify, you go to Apple Music, you can find us there. Um, it's under Hicksville Cornerstone Church. There actually is a Hicksville Cornerstone Church in Hicksville, New York. So if you click on the wrong one, um, it's, a, it's actually, I've tuned into one of their sermons, um, well, not sermons, one of their feeds. Um, it's an Indian church. Um, so if you hear, uh, good evening in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're on the wrong place. But those are the two options online. Last week, we looked at the importance of prayer and fasting. If you noticed, as we read the text of scripture this morning, we're not going to focus too heavily on fasting this week. However, we're going to continue our discussion on prayer. So let's, let's do a quick recap, just in case you weren't uh, with us last week. First thing is this, is that prayer is assumed. If you're a Christian, you pray. Now, does that mean that you will be like super prayer person, like the moment that you become born again? Probably not. But it's one of those disciplines that over time, as we continue to invest in it, it becomes easier and easier and more natural. And you're going to get more comfortable with prayer. As the text says early on, first, in your private prayers, and secondly, our public ones. But the assumption is, either way, that you will pray. The second thing that we've covered in depth was the difference between the empty and the full phrases. 
One of the ways that we pray like the hypocrites is if we pray with language in which we don't know what they're saying. The Gentiles of the day, when Jesus was speaking to this, they would incorporate Hebrew words into their prayers to sound more godly. Now, if you know the Gentiles, these are non-Jews. Many of them did not know what on earth they were saying, but because they believed in the power of the Hebrew God, they incorporated those words in their prayers. It sounded good to others. And at the end of the day, that was the focus of what they were saying. They wanted to sound good and righteous in the eyes of men and women around them and not necessarily good and righteous before a holy God. And unfortunately, let's be real. When many of us say the Lord's Prayer, it has become an empty phrase. We say it because, well, that's how Jesus instructed us to say it. But we don't actually know what it means. And so last week we began to break down what it actually means. And we're going to continue that this week. And when we looked at it last week, we first looked at the dichotomy that exists between the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in these words found in the opening of the Lord's Prayer, we find something that is intimate yet glorious. Jesus, as the Son of God, is modeling how to pray to God the Father. He takes us by the hand and introduces us to Him. And Waiting God the Father caring. is not reluctant in doing this. He is actually joyous at it. For He's the one who sent Jesus, the Son, in the first place. And in doing so, He actually is introducing the concept of what it means to be a child of God. We are adopted into the family of God. He desires for us to call him Father, Abba, for he is a father all good fathers are modeled after. And yet, while we at least have an idea of what a good father looks like, we all have TV dads that we wish were ours, right? I think that desire is written on our hearts for what a good father would be. As fallen creatures, many times we lack the ability to understand what it means for God to be transcendent, to be holy Paid. or hallowed. It says, hallowed be thy name. The Greek word for hallowed is sanctified. God is set apart. God is, in one real sense, holy other. There's a reason the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of the rock to protect Moses from his glory. There's a reason Isaiah prostrates himself when he has a vision of God on the throne in heaven. There's a reason John in Revelation, at the sight of his best friend in his glorified body, hallows before him. <coughs> and this dichotomy plays beautifully within itself. You see, the more you know God the Father intimately, the more you will know Him as hallowed. And the more hallowed you treat Him, the more intimate we find Him. Take the opposite of that as an example. When we treat God as nothing more than a moral dictator, we fail to see His holiness. And when we treat the name of God as nothing more than profane, we actually slap our Father in heaven as he offers himself to us. 
we are called, we are called into an intimate yet glorious relationship. An intimate yet glorious relationship in a specific place. Well, what's that specific place? The kingdom of heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is where we find the kingdom of heaven yet again. This call for kingdom living has a profound impact on the way that we approach life, or at least it should. Within the prayer, we are asking for the kingdom of God to come, which means that we're abolishing our own. We are asking that God's will would be done, which means we're putting to death our will. We are asking the Lord to do on earth as it is in heaven, reigning and ruling with authority and power. This is a profound statement. And we took away two applications from it. First application was this. When we pray for God's will to be done, we are committing ourselves to learn all we can about God's will. And the second application was this. If my heart cries out for God's will to be done, then in praying this prayer, it is my pledge, so help me God, by His grace, I will actually do His will as much as I know how. So how do we go about doing this? How do we do these things? Well, we plead for the grace of God to be poured out on us. Well, how does He go, how does he go about doing that? Well, that's just where we get to part two of the Lord's Prayer. So let's jump right in. Matthew 6, 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As we dive into part two, this is a really good Bible study tip. I highly suggest it. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, I actually suggest that you do it now. And if you want to understand what a specific passage says, look for the verbs and circle them. That gives us a real basic idea of what they are asking within the text, specifically when it comes to application. And this portion of the scripture gives us four verbs in particular that we're going to look at. It says, give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. So let's look at the first one when it says give us. This is a reminder to the original audience in which the Lord gave this instruction that it was predominantly Jewish, right? So when he made a statement like give us our daily bread, or as it says in the Greek, which we're going to get into momentarily, our daily bread give us, there's a story which immediately comes to mind. I know I rarely do call and response at, at during service, but we're going to try it this morning, okay? Where in the Old Testament is daily bread given? Exodus, excellent, in the wilderness, right? And so if you're a Jew, you hear a statement like, give us this day our daily bread, that's the immediate image and story that comes to mind 40 years in the wilderness. Every day, the Hebrews would go outside their tents and they would find supernaturally bread from heaven, manna on the ground. God did this daily, except on the Sabbath, and the Hebrews would gather enough bread only for the day in jars, and it was only enough for them and their families, and any additional bread gathered would go bad supernaturally. Think about it. It was bread to sustain God's people. Bread to sustain God's people in the wilderness. 
bread specifically for God's people, bread for a set amount of time, and bread from heaven. The word daily in the text is really interesting too, in the, especially in the original language. It's the only place in the Bible that this word is found within the scriptures. Matthew uses different words for day and daily at other places, along with other authors. And I think this is intentional, that we only find this word in one place, for it has a richer meaning. First, it emphasizes the giver of the bread, the heavenly aspect to it. Look, I think very much on the surface, it has a real sense in which the Lord, as you pray this prayer, is speaking about our physical needs. But as so many things in Scripture um, do, there seems to be a double meaning within the text. He's not only asking, we're not only asking in this prayer for the Lord to literally feed us physically, but we're also asking the Lord to feed us spiritually. Think about it. There's a reason that Jesus refers to himself as what? The bread of life. And even only a couple chapters earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, when he's being tempted in the desert, right? Jesus says that man shall not live on bread alone. So when we pray this, we are asking God for both physical and spiritual sustenance. That's what we're really asking as we pray this prayer. And because it's the Father's kingdom and the Father's will that we seek, he promises to give it to us. We're going to see that in a couple weeks as we get into the parables. You see, we need both physical and spiritual food daily. And ironically, when it comes to fasting, which we covered last week, when we give up physical food, it helps us taste our spiritual food more richly. That's what's taking place here. Next verb, forgive us. Another Bible study text, you see a verb over and over and over and over again within a specific set of verses, it's probably important. And this one is not just probably important, it's very important here because in the next four verses, he uses this word six times. Jesus knows that his followers will fail. You, me, the person next to you, we're going to sin and fail all the time. And when that happens, enmity exists between persons. And when we fail God, enmity can exist between us and him. Why am I using the word enmity? Because I think it best describes what takes place when we sin. When we engage in the kingdom of darkness, when we pay homage to the ruler of this world, there is enmity. What is enmity? Enmity is deep-rooted hatred. Sometimes so deeply rooted that we don't even know that it's hatred. But it's there underground. It's assumed. We see this in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Jesus calls friendship with the world enmity with God. James 4, 1 John 2. And the carnal mind is enmity against God. Romans 8, those are that are against God. There's that word over and over again. Notice, though, how enmity has both a vertical aspect. It, there's something between us and God, and a horizontal aspect, something between us and others. It's what existed between Adam and Eve after the fall, that when we follow the ways of world, we actually have enmity with God. And what's the solution offered to us 
in Scripture when enmity is in between relationships. Forgiveness. That's what's offered to us. The word debt here, as we look at the text, right, give us, forgive us our debts, can also be translated as transgressions. That's why some of you say it differently depending on your church background. Actually, in Aramaic, it's really interesting, which might have been the language that Jesus actually taught this in. It's the same Greek word, which has a slightly different meaning, which just means sin. So over again, sin, transgression, debt, it's all within there, okay? So when we're asking this, we're asking God to forgive the sin that we have committed against him. And in doing so, he removes the enmity between us and him. We're no longer considered his enemies, but we're considered his children. Isn't it really interesting? I love this verse, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, when there was still enmity between us and a holy God, Christ died for us. I think we all love this section of the prayer. When we get to say, God, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for the enmity that is in between you and I. And when we dwell on it, we realize what he is saying, right? When we realize that he is not only a God that gives to us, but he is a God that takes away, forgives, spiritually and physically. And because of it, we should be forever grateful. For now we are a people that walk in forgiveness. Forgiveness should be a defining feature of the life of the Christian. Why? Because you have been forgiven. Which makes the next line so stark in contrast. It makes it so hard because we can't just gloss over it. I want to many times, but we can't. For the implications are profound. What does it say? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The assumption is that not only if you are a Christian, you are marked by forgiveness. But if you're a Christian, forgiveness will mark your life before others. If forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors could also read forgive us our debts only if we forgive our debtors. If we are Christians and we harbor enmity against one another, if we water and prune enmity against others, then our Heavenly Father, it says in the text here, will not forgive you. If you are in his will, if you're, if you're in his kingdom, forgiveness will be a feature of your life, so much so that he goes back to this at the epilogue of the Lord's Prayer in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There is a clear call to forgiveness within this text. Forgiveness begins to deal with deep-rooted hatred that mankind has between us and a holy God and us and others. It's the vertical and horizontal dimensions of it. Specifically this from verse 12, we forgive because we have been forgiven. You know this. I talk about it a lot. We live in a very individualistic culture. 
the modern self looks in the mirror and says, well, if it benefits me, it must be good. If it makes me feel good, then it is good. And if it doesn't hurt anybody else in the process, then I'm free to do it. And this concept of the modern self sees self as supreme when making ethical decisions. Here's the scary part. Many of us have bought the lie, right? We've twisted the modern self so much that it's twisted our idea of forgiveness. My guess is you have very much, to quote Jesus, heard it says, heard it said, forgiveness, forgiveness is about you more than it is the other person, right? And that sounds very wise and contrite. Tim Keller puts it this way. The therapeutic reason for forgiveness is self-interest and self-actualization. You do it strictly for your own mental health and your own freedom, your own peace of mind. Now, true Christian forgiveness can bring you those things. I actually think it very much does. But they're the byproducts of forgiveness. They're not the core of forgiveness. The core motive of biblical forgiveness, and we see this in all the texts of Scripture that deals with this, is to glorify and honor God, to forgive as He has forgiven you, and second, to bring about change for the common good. Because the enmity between us and God has been removed by Jesus, the enmity that exists between you and others should be removed by you because of the work of Jesus. We get to be salt and light in this moment. We get to extend spiritual daily bread to another person as we forgive them. And when we make forgiveness all about us and our own personal peace, we neglect the truth that if we're honest, many of us love nursing grudges and actually find it quite pleasurable. When I was a teenager... Just getting farther and farther away. When a teacher would assign a group project, I would cringe. Okay? Teachers pay attention. Anyone in here not like group projects? All right? Some of you. Yeah, some of it depends, right? I hated group projects. And I had one specific group project where the bonehead, I mean the, the guy who I was working with, Please forgive me. <laughs> right? He didn't do his job. And so we ended up with a not-so-decent grade. And I loved to nurse that grudge. Right? You, sir, are an idiot. Called him that on a regular basis every time we'd enter class. Right? Because he, he helped us not get the grade that we deserved. And it wasn't because he was dumb. Right? And so I held that laziness against him for the longest time. Why? Because pointing out how lazy he was made me feel much better about my own procrastination issues. Pointing out how selfish they were made me feel like I actually cared for others because I did my portion of the project. Pointing out their sin made me feel righteous. The question should not be, church, will forgiveness make you feel better? The question is, does forgiving someone who has hurt you 
honor God? And the answer throughout Scripture over and over again is yes. And when we forgive, we boldly proclaim, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For if it was my kingdom, there would be a lot more people who got what they deserve. And probably much more than they deserve. For one of the outcomes of vengeance is overkill, right? But how are we to forgive? Right, that's a funny story about group projects. How are we to forgive, especially when they've hurt us so much? When the enmity between us and another person is as big as a boulder. And we look at that boulder and you're like, I can't move that boulder. We have to understand some truths to forgiveness. So let me give you some truths to forgiveness. This one is so key. Forgiveness is granted an event before it's felt. Process. Forgiveness is granted an event before it's felt. Process. Every time. And, and again, in a therapeutic, deistic world where it's all about a self, we get this inverted, right? Well, I can't forgive them until I feel it. You're going to be waiting a long time. It's a promise before God not to take revenge on a wrongdoer for his or her sin against you. And making this promise entails three specific commitments. The first one's this, not to constantly bring up the sin to the wrongdoer in order to browbeat or punish her. Not to constantly bring the sin up to other people in order to hurt the wrongdoer's reputation or relationship with others. And three, not to constantly bring up the sin to yourself. Not to keep the anger hot. Not to replay the video of it in order to cherish those feelings of nobility and virtue that comes when we feel like we're treated unjustly. Let's be real. When you grant forgiveness... At first, for many of us, it ain't going to feel great. There's still going to be anger and bitterness, and maybe even justly. You might even be justified in your anger and bitterness. However, if you keep your commitment to grant forgiveness, let me state something clear. It's hard. This is not easy. The Lord calls us into a difficult task here. But when we enter into this, we remember our vertical dimension, that we're a sinner living wholly by God's grace. And then slowly and surely, you will feel that forgiveness you have granted. I had, a, I had an authority figure in high school sin against me. Their kingdom was very important to them and anyone who broke their law, even if it was in the midst of following God's law, was thrown and then run over by the bus. And I had every right to be angry, and, and I was. I, I wanted so much to nurse unforgiveness, to water that weed in my garden, and I did it for a season, happily. But like a weed in a garden, it chokes out the other fruit of the Spirit. I became bitter real quick. 
and not just towards the authority figure that had sinned against me, but to every person who trampled on my own kingdom. And then the pastor of the church I went to had the nerve to preach on forgiveness. I did not want to hear that sermon that day, but I needed to. And I was able to grant forgiveness. And so I did. And on day one, I didn't feel much different. Day two, still didn't feel much different. Day five, still didn't feel much different. But every day I woke up and said, Lord, help me to forgive this person. And then day seven, a little. And then I started to pray for them by name, for their salvation, that they would know Christ, that they would know his forgiveness. And well, that's when the dam broke. <laughs> there were still days where I was better for a really long time. And I know, but I no longer daydreamed about the different ways that the Lord could judge them. And by the way, I had a very active imagination, okay? I had a long list of ways that I thought the Lord could adequately judge them. They've been out of my life for almost 20 years. I was sitting in a coffee shop writing this sermon early this week, and I thought to myself, well, what would happen if they walked in the door? I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I think I'd have to ask God to help me forgive them again. And I pray that I could look them in the face, call them by name, not the nicknames that I could come up with, but call them by their real name, shake their hand, maybe even ask them how they've been. And I thought about it. I, I thought, would I be able to pray for them before we departed company? I hope I could. And with God's grace, I think I just might be able to. Why? Because Tim Keller shows us in his book on forgiveness. He just have a new book that came out, Forgive. If this is something that you struggle with, I highly suggest that book. It's called Forgive by Tim Keller. But this is one of the statements in this book. And the key to grasping forgiveness on a human level is to ground it in God's forgiveness available through Christ's cross. Apart from this vertical source, human forgiveness is essentially a farce, unable to provide reconciliation. Church, forgiveness is at the very heart of the gospel. Some of you know my story. I hated God. I used to be the kid who would go on church retreats. I'd smile to my folks and say, sure, I'd go. I lied to them boldly and beautifully just so they'd give me approval. I used to be the kid who'd go on youth retreats and try to deconvert kids. I was literally a youth pastor's worst nightmare, okay? I was so angry at a God I did not believe in. I cursed the name of God regularly, and I treated the children of God with great contempt, and yet, this intimate and glorious God offered me forgiveness. At what cost? Well, he paid for it. He wanted me to know him just as he wants you to know him. If you're here today 
and you don't know the forgiveness of God, I would invite you to do just that. Turn from your sin, your heart of enmity and unforgiveness, and a brace of God of love and reconciliation. For the next two verbs on the Sermon of the Mount tells us what he offers. Matthew 6, 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Think about lead us. When we submit our lives to God, we are asking God to take control. Not that we become, suddenly become very passive, but our activity in the world is now empowered by supernatural living. It's not like God leads us like we're a puppy on a leash, or as the great theologian Carrie Underwood sings, giving up the wheel of life, right? Jesus, take the wheel. Yeah, I'm not going to try it, not with this voice. She does it much better than me. I think this is a better analogy, right, than Carrie offers. Imagine driving to a destination through thick fog late at night. Me and Mike went through this about a year ago. If you were here for the Ecclesiastes series, think of the hevel of the uncertainty of the world. And your friend knows the roads much better than you. And he says, I'm going to drive slow. I'm going to have my lights on in front of me. Follow my lights. And I'll get us to the destination. I will lead you home. And you trust him in that moment, not to get you into a ditch, to not make a wrong turn. You trust him. Here's the thing, and we see it in a second. The devil has put up road signs along the path, and even in the fog, they blink and offer a better way to your destination. Know this, the devil is a liar. He would steal the joy offered to you in Christ. He would have you lead a life of unforgiveness, and the scripture says, ultimately join him at his destination. Is this verse saying that we won't ever face temptation, by no means. It is saying the temptation that the evil one will offer us, Jesus will guide us through. We are asking God to protect us from the spiritual powers at work against us. For what purpose? Next verb, to deliver us. Some translations mark it as deliver us from the evil one. It's literally the exact same word in the Greek, so translators have to make a call here. And I think because of the use of the temptation word before it, it's probably the evil one. However, the evil one, I don't know if you know this, has minions. He's got people on his team. So evil is a good translation too. When I was not a believer and a <coughs> lack of forgiveness plagued my heart, I regularly listened to the evil one. Different actions I could take hurt those that had hurt me. The saying is true. Hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. And you can get addicted to it real quick. Victim mentality is a very real thing. We assume the worst motives for people when we have already been hurt once. To quote from a famous rapper, we can bleed on people that never cut us. We can bleed on people that never cut us. Yet we cut Christ 
with our transgressions. In our sin, our sin placed enmity between God and us. And yet, instead of that cut damning us, it was our very salvation. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Think about it. Christ changes the game on forgiveness. He offers forgiveness because his love for you is so intimate, because who he is is so glorious. And when repentance comes into your life, when you finally see the glory of God and understand what he's done for you, then forgiveness begins to mark your life. Of all the sins that could have been involved in the Lord's Prayer, right? Why did Jesus choose this one? Because this one is a heart revealer. This displays evidence of salvation, of deliverance from evil. You will battle unforgiveness your whole life. Why? You're human and people do you wrong. So everyone does, inside or outside the church. And when it comes to forgiveness, Buddha will tell you to ignore it. Modern culture will tell you to minimize it. Jesus is the only one who deals with it. And when he does, it's forever changing. For we begin to feel the presence of God at work in our darkest valleys. And we display the light of the world in the darkest places. Imagine with me, church, for a moment. Imagine a group of people who are defined by their love and forgiveness of their neighbor and enemy who don't hide from enmity, but actually deal with it because the Lord has dealt with ours. This is so counter-cultural. We literally, literally live in cancel culture where people are canceled when enmity is placed between them. Jesus offers a cancel culture too, by the way. He cancels sin by paying for it on our behalf. He offers us a relationship that empowers us to supernatural living. Imagine, church, if we are a people defined by our love and forgiveness for our neighbor and our enemy. Imagine, church, if forgiveness defined our marriages. Instead of ignoring enmity, instead of ignoring division, instead of having a playlist of different things that they did against you in the past, that your marriage was marked by forgiveness, by reminding yourself and your spouse that Jesus dealt with sin, and so we can deal with sin too. Now, for the one that put enmity there, we are called to repent and, and, and say, I did something wrong. We have to do that. But we know that there's forgiveness and restitution at the cross. There's still work. But because of Jesus, there's a hope in something greater. Imagine, church, if forgiveness defined the relationships between parents and children. Parents, when we model forgiveness to young men and women in the culture, where sin is minimized, joked about, no worried, but doesn't deal with enmity, when we model this, we model healthy, God-centered relationships. I would argue there is nothing more powerful than modeling forgiveness to your children when it comes to displaying the gospel. Nothing more powerful. If you can look at your child 
and say, I did something wrong, will you forgive me? There are a few greater things that we can do to model the gospel. We should be the chief repenters in our home fathers. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of his strength. Imagine, church, if we are known for our forgiveness so much that when people ask you, how can you forgive? It gave such a profound opportunity to share how you have been forgiven. Well, yes, hurt people hurt people. Forgiven people forgive people. And so may this be our prayer. May we pray this model of prayer every time the devil would tempt us for revenge and enmity. May we pray this prayer with renewed vigor because it's no longer empty words, but it's full of grace towards us and our neighbor. Pray it with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father God, as we look at the Lord's Prayer today and we're reminded of the glory and intimacy of our Heavenly Father who is in heaven, and we hopefully begin to see forgiveness as a rich model of not only this prayer, but of what you've done at the cross. May we see your forgiveness towards us in such a rich way that it cannot help but impact the way we forgive others. Lord, for those in the church that have deep enmity against a brother or sister in Christ, against a family member, Lord, I pray that they would pray this prayer with renewed vigor, that they would begin to pray for the person that they have enmity against by name, that they would pray that they would know salvation, they would know you, they would know forgiveness, and because of it, their relationship be restored and reconciled before a holy God. And for those of us that don't know this God of forgiveness, may we know that all we need do is repent and believe in the gospel to follow Jesus. And this is something that is a great grace, a great gift, and that we can call upon his name and be forever changed and marked by forgiveness as we move forward. In your son's name I pray. Amen.